0: I'll remain standing for the reading of God's word as you're able. We've got a medium-sized passage this morning. You'll notice we're jumping around, looking at a larger chunk, five through seven, and we have some bits taken out there for our reading this morning as we continue through Exodus. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord." The God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword." But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Jumping to verse 22 in chapter 5, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why do you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will, bring you out of, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you from an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Chapter 6, verse 28 through 30. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, how will Pharaoh listen to me? and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The word of the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you will work through your word as you have been working through it in eternity's past, knowing that you work in your people by the power of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would work through Pastor Andrew this morning, your servant, that he would bring us the goodness of the gospel, that we may taste and see and know that it is good. And if it is good, we know that you are good because you give us good gifts. And Father, we uh, submit ourselves to you. We're going to sit at the throne of grace and mercy. we want to hear your word and know that the Spirit will be working on our hearts and minds. So we do pray that that would happen this morning in this place and in many places like ours. As Christians worship together, hearing from you this morning all over the world. We pray all of this and much more in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. add my voice of welcome to those that have preceded me. Thank you for your good singing this morning. It's a, such a blessing uh, to encourage one another through song, grateful for that. Want to walk through uh, chapters 5 to 7, not so much skipping around as sort of telescoping the story here as we move from Moses' call to go to Egypt uh, and his final determination to do so uh, till we get to the first plague that begins in chapter 7, verse 8. So moving then through. Chapter 5, 6, and the first part of 7, we're going to move the story along and see what it is that God has to say to us. I want to start, though, with the Wall Street Journal, because where else would you start, right? Uh, The Wall Street Journal had an article a number of years ago called The Paris Effect. Here's what the Paris Effect is. It was first discovered by Dr. Hiroaki Ota, a Japanese psychiatrist working in France, And he identified this syndrome as he noticed people arriving in France expecting an affluent and friendly European capital where slim, beautiful Parisians walk around smelling of Chanel. Isn't that all of our expectations if we were to go to France? The article went on to note that many visitors, though they are expecting this, are disappointed. They expect a place full of romance, beauty, and wealth. Instead, they find the pavements peppered with cigarette butts, and they experience aggravated commuters packed into metro trains. For some, the shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help for their symptoms that may include irritability, fear, obsession, depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. In extreme cases, the only remedy is a one way ticket out of France. My thought is that as we approach our calling and our story, as we approach it through the eyes of Moses going into Egypt, that we experience this Paris effect, although we might call it the Egyptian effect. We come full of anticipation. We come full of expectation only to find ourselves faced with reality that doesn't match our anticipation. If you remember the end of chapter 4, Moses finally makes his way back to Egypt. He sits down with the people of Israel. He sits down with the elders and he tells them all that God has said to them. And what do they do? They bow their heads and they worship. And Moses is like... Yes, we're moving out. This is going to go well, even though God had told him it probably wouldn't. But nonetheless, uh, and so he goes. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went, and they said to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness." But it doesn't go well, and I want to walk us through this uh, by three uh, three things. You know, as we. As we seek to follow the Lord, we find that it's still difficult. I'm taking them out of order here. Uh, We still doubt, and, and yet God still remains in dogged pursuit of us, all right? So, we'll start in the middle there. Things are still difficult. Moses expects, he's seen a little bit, people respond to him, he wasn't sure about that, and now he goes into Egypt, and he tells Pharaoh... This is what Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, not going to happen. I am not going to let this people go. In fact, I am going to make it even worse worse for them. I am going to double their labor because I'm going to demand that they still produce the same number of bricks as they are slave laborers in my society. I'm going to demand that they still produce the same number of bricks, but I am not going to equip them with the straw, the materials, in order to do that. So, I am going to increase, double down, uh, strengthen the, the grip on this slave nation. And one of the things that we see from this is that as we seek to follow the Lord, we need to expect that it's going to bring us into hard places. Uh, I I use that word hard there specifically because we're going to talk in a minute about Pharaoh's hard heart. But if you notice in verse 9, Uh, of chapter 5, where it says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words, Uh, that word heavier there is the same word that is translated hard in terms of hard heart. And Pharaoh's response, and oftentimes the world's response to the message of Yahweh is, no, and I'm going to make it hard for you. I'm going to make it heavier. I'm going to lay on the difficulty. Uh, It is going to be increased. Now, I point this out because we we need to have proper expectations so we don't experience the Egyptian effect uh, and become disconsolate, become so weighed down in our spirit that we need a one-way ticket out of following Yahweh right? We, we need to have our expectations in check. But I say this knowing that it's so difficult for us here in the 21st century in the West to take this into our story, to, uh, to learn to see and expect that the way is hard. You know, there are so many false prophets in our land that say, follow Jesus and you will have your best life now. Follow Jesus, and and you can have it all. Follow Jesus, and and it will be perfect. But that is not the message of the Scriptures. The, The message of the Scriptures says, when you follow me, you can take up your cross in order to follow me. there There is going to be difficulty, and we see it all around, right? We see it because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a fallen world, we have fallen bodies, and our bodies break down, and we get old. And, and it's not easy to do these things. And if we expect that it's all going to be just plain easy we're going to be disappointed and we're going to want the one way ticket out of following Yahweh we experience it because we live in a world with broken systems you know and so our politics are broken uh, our countries are broken around the world we see oppressive regimes putting down people persecuting them we see all of that and if we don't learn to recognize that we live in a world where it is hard to follow the Lord, we're going to be disappointed. You know, we, we see it in our own hearts. Satan still comes in, right, and he he makes it difficult for us because he messes with our minds and tempts us in certain ways, and we battle the flesh, as the Scripture calls it, and it's hard. And so, if you don't learn to see that, you know, if you're led away by the led astray by the false prophets. It's going to be really difficult for you when you do come to those hard places, and they come in every way, shape, and form, as I've just mentioned. They come because we live in a world where there are hard hearts, and here's the second thing under this difficulty that we we need to spend a little bit of time on. We're going to come back to this. We already saw this in 421 uh, where God said, you know, you're going to go into Pharaoh And you're going to ask him to let your people go, but he's going to say no, because I'm going to harden his heart. Now, believe it or not, uh, God gave Moses that for encouragement. That's the kind of encouragement that uh, we need, right? So, I'm going to ask you to do this, and it's going to fail, but be encouraged. Uh, Be encouraged because I am still in control and that's the point here that God is in control. We we struggle with this there's about I don't know how many times. There's a number of times, it's over a dozen, uh, where there is this talk of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and there's three different ways the agency of that is spoken of. Uh, One way is that the Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart. Another way is that Pharaoh hardened his heart, so Pharaoh is the agent of the hardening. And then a third way is that it's unspecified. Uh, that uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, It doesn't say he did it or God did it, it just says it was hardened. So, how do we begin to understand this? Uh, This is a theme that is picked up later on in Scripture, Psalm 105, verse 25, Uh, you know, as the history of Israel is recounted, makes the point to say that the Egyptians' hearts were hardened uh, against the Israelites. Later in Romans chapter 9, Paul references this, and he, he talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. How do we get our minds around this? Uh, It raises questions for us. How do we begin to understand it? Now, I can't deal with all of them. Uh, There's there's certainly some mystery here that we have to bow before. We we cannot answer every single question, particularly when it comes to issues of divine sovereignty, uh, when it comes to human responsibility. I mean, we are so small people. Uh, And I say that with all love and respect, and I say it with all humility with regards to myself. I mean, we are not God, so we cannot expect, we should not expect to explain all the things perfectly that we encounter in the Scriptures. we, We bow before mystery, and that's okay. I mean, think about it. If you could explain it all, then you would be God. Uh, you would have all the answers, right? Uh, so there's a certain sense in which our not being able to have all the answers strangely comforts us uh, because it reminds us that God is God and we are not. Nevertheless, we can say some things about the, the way this is used here in this text that I think us, that I think help us to capture a major truth. So here's, here's the way that the Egyptians thought about the heart. We tend to think about the heart in terms of the seat of emotions. Uh, oh, my heart. You know, we, we're talking about how it a thing makes us feel at that particular time, Disney, you know, follow your, your heart, your dreams, your desires, you know, it's kind of all of these things that tug us along. We know that the Hebrew concept of heart was very different. It was the seat of being. It was your intellect, your will, your emotions, all of these things, your spirituality, it was all wrapped up with your heart. The Egyptian view of heart was even a little bit stronger Uh, All of these aspects came uh, came together so that the heart was viewed for the Egyptians as the seat of destiny. It was very much tied up with your personhood, determining one's life. Uh, It's because of this autonomy of the heart that the heart for the Egyptians came to be seen as the second being of a person next to and outside of himself. It even came to be said that the heart of a man is God Himself. The heart was the divine instrument through which a God directed a man and the organ by which man could receive and comprehend divine commandments. So, again, more than just sort of in emotions and how you feel about a thing, the heart was very much tied up with who you were, and it had almost a divine sense to it uh, as it was understood by the Egyptians. And so one of the things that Yahweh is communicating to Moses and to us by extension is that Yahweh is absolutely authoritative over all of humanity. He stands in control of each one of us. And there is no enemy of Yahweh that can set Himself up successfully against the purposes of Yahweh. But Yahweh controls His very heart. He controls His very being. So, when the Scriptures tell us, and they do, unambiguously. I mean, we cannot escape that that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. He does it. Uh, That does not mean, incidentally, and this is where some of the mystery is, that Pharaoh is not complicit. That does not mean that Pharaoh is not responsible. Uh, As Pharaoh stands before the judgment seat of God, he will be absolutely responsible for every single act and thought that he did in his life. But what the scriptures want us to see and what this what God wanted to demonstrate to the Israelites was that nothing no one no matter how divine they claim to be can set themselves up against Yahweh praise the lord I mean, we, we need to know that in a world where there are so many things that set themselves up and so many people and ideologies and all of those things that set themselves up against Yahweh, we need to know that He is able to harden the most divine setting-themself-up thing. And He is in absolute control uh, of that situation. So be comforted. You know, there, there is nothing that is outside of God's control. You know, I know sometimes people struggle with the idea of sovereignty, and I know that it raises some questions. I understand that. I am not unsympathetic to that. But understand, we live in a day and age in which you, individual autonomy is, giving, is given deification. I mean, it is given divine status in our culture. Like, you can do anything but get your hands off my body, get your hands off my mind, get your hands off my wallet. I mean, it is all about the individual. And God says, no, you've got it wrong. I am autonomous. I alone, I alone rule. I alone am sovereign. And so we recognize there's hard places and there's hard hearts. But God still is sovereign and in control. Secondly, though, as we experience these difficulties, we also doubt. I mean, we've seen this with Moses all the way through, right? He keeps asking these questions. God says, go. Moses says, but. God says, but I will be with you. And He gives him signs, and He meets him on the road to kill him, and you know, all of these very dramatic things. But Moses is still struggling. And this is just a reminder that where even the spirit is willing, the flesh is often weak. Uh, we see this in our own hearts and lives. So find a friend here in Moses, right? We, we doubt. He goes to the people. He's encouraged. They all bow their heads in worship. He goes to Pharaoh, and he's discouraged. Uh, he turns to the Lord and said, Why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He has made it more difficult. He's done evil to these people and not delivered your people at all. And then he says the same thing at the end of chapter 6. God speaks to him and said, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Verse 30, it's not printed for you in your bulletin, but it's there. Believe me. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses has these doubts about himself, but why is that? Why do we doubt? Just review what we've said the last couple of weeks. What is Moses looking at? He's looking at the external circumstances. You know, the, the people, the Israelites, or the Egyptians have made it more difficult. You know, they're standing against me. So he's looking at the external circumstances. He's looking internally at his own gifts. I'm of uncircumcised lips. I don't have the ability to do this. I stutter. I, I, I don't have the gifting that I need. Where isn't Moses looking, at, looking? He's not looking at Yahweh. Uh, and, and this is, you know, what I discovered a new word here uh, this week, pusillanimity. It's a very difficult word to say. Uh, the, the, the noun form is uh, pusillanimous, right? It, it's timidity. Uh, Moses doubts his pusillanimity, his timidity, come from... Not so much, you know, the reality of the situation, but from where he's looking. He's looking at what's out there and what's in here, and he's not looking at Yahweh. He's not looking at the Lord. And as we seek to bring the gospel into the culture with our neighbors, with our family, as, as we seek to live it out, we too are pusillanimous. We're timid. You know, we, we, we struggle with that. Why? Is it because we don't know? Here's how one writer says it, one of the common obstacles that we have to evangelism, to bringing the gospel into our world, is timidity. Most Christians struggle with this. But timidity, it seems to me, is not so much a lack of nerve, but rather it's a misdirection of focus from God to ourselves. Uh, it is forgetting that we are, we are merely the messengers through whom God is making His appeal. So, here's the encouragement. Keep looking at Yahweh. You know, don't look around. It's Peter walking on the waves, right? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't, don't look at the waves. The minute we start looking at the waves, either out there or in here, is the minute that we start sinking. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus... Uh, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we have a courage to resist pusillanimity. All right, last time I'm going to use that word. The second thing I want you to note just about this is that it's understandable. Uh, so, still doubting why? I, verse chapter six, verse nine. Maybe you picked up on that. Really stood out to me as praying through that this week. Uh, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You know, they, the people in, in the end of chapter 24, or in the end of chapter 4 worshiped, but then things came down and the conditions got more difficult, and their spirits were broken. They were discouraged. The harsh slavery you know, again, that's hard, heavy, Cavode, that, that idea, that, that hard slavery really weighed them down. And I thought, you know, that is a word for God's people. Uh, it's a word for me because I, I often feel discouraged. I, I ran across a little story this week about Satan's garage sale. Uh, Satan's garage sale, you could go and you could purchase all sorts of implements to, uh, to take people away from the gospel. There over there was the weed whipper of lust, and, you know, over there was the lawnmower of avarice and greed. And, and over here was this implement that was old and worn, but surprisingly had a very high price tag on it. And so you go to the owner of the house, Satan, and you say, what's the deal with this thing over here? I don't really recognize it, but yet it's so high priced. And he says to you, that over there is the most valuable instrument in the sale. All of these other things, avarice, lust, slothfulness, they all have their use. But if you really want to take somebody away from following Yahweh, you need this right here. This right here is discouragement. Discouragement has such a power to to take us away from the promises of Yahweh. We we get so down in in the midst of our failure. Again, you know, Moses should have been ready. God said, I'm going to have you do this, but you're going to fail, and, and, and we are just so conditioned to succeed, maybe we need to start planning to fail a little bit more. Because if we plan to fail, then we can look up and see the promises of Yahweh who, who meets us. But we just live by the gospel of success, you know, whether it's in our parenting. I mean, think about it. Young parents here, those of you, are, maybe you are listening to podcasts, you can't read enough books, you, you want to get it right, you know, we want to succeed. And, and then we find out, <coughs> to our surprise, that our kids are sinful, you know, that they, they, they rebel against us, and, and even more, they reveal the depths of sin in our own hearts, and we, we come up against Failure. You know, well, both when they're little as well as when they get older, and 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 it, we say, you know, I, I wanted to succeed at this, but my parenting was not enough. You know, we go into our workplaces, and, and we want to do well. We want our work to be enough, but we can't. It's not enough. You know, and our civic responsibility, we we see all these problems, and so we engage it, but it's not enough. And And everywhere we go, it's not enough. We find out that we fail we find out that success doesn't follow our every step and so how do we handle that in the gospel how do we experience it we often experience it a lot like the israelites our spirits are broken because of our harsh bondage and make no mistake we are in bondage whether it's our politics or our parenting whether it's our broken down bodies or the broken down systems that we live in we are in bondage. And our spirits, our spirits oftentimes are broken. So, where do we go from here? This is where we move on from, you know, the difficulty of our, the story that we're in, uh, the the doubts that uh, assail us, and we move into the dogged pursuit of our Savior. Uh, because that ultimately is what this story is about. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't pull any punches when it comes to and it's heroes. And I put heroes in, in quotes because the heroes of the Bible are not the people that we meet. They're not the people that we meet. They're not the the, the Adams or the Noahs or the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the Davids or the, the Peters or the Miriams or the Lydia's or whoever they are. They're not the people that we meet. The, the Bible doesn't pull any punches with regards to them. They're all shown to be, you know, sinners, disappointing, lousy sinners, uh, all sorts of different ways, denying the Savior, hurting other people. There's, there's all sorts of ways. But the hero of the Scriptures and the hero of Exodus is always and only Yahweh. And there's a couple of ways that this comes up here in this passage that we're reminded that God is the absolute hero. First of all, he helps us understand the bigger story that we are in. Uh, you saw that in 6 chapter 2, or 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I appeared to him as God Almighty, El Shaddai, uh, but by my name the Lord. Yahweh, the covenant God, I did not make myself known to them. So, he's emphasizing that he's drawing closer to his people than he even did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is helping Moses here, and God is helping us see far. One of the things that, that I am convinced of, you know, one of the things that, that hampers us spiritually so often is that we are absolute slaves to the immediate. We are absolutely enslaved by immediacy. What happens in my life today determines how I feel, how I think about things. You know, how many likes I get on Instagram, what the, uh, or hearts, or whatever they are, you know, what the, the likes are on Facebook, what, how everything responds to me, it's, it's instantaneous. I mean, you can't even watch a basketball game. Without, within like two minutes, they've got like an article up, di. di uh, what am I trying to say? Evaluate, dissecting the game. I knew I had that. It's, it's instantaneous. We've got to have instantaneous reaction. You know, Twitter, we even have it as we go through, right? It's all about the now. But what God wants to do is spread us out and says, look at you're in a story, you're in a story that that's not all about you, believe it or not. You know, you're, you're, you're a player in this much, much bigger story. Go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, as you look at this passage, outside of what we were able to print, those of you who have your Bibles, when you come to chapter 6, verse 14, it's super interesting there uh, because God does something so un-American, and I love it. Uh, God... Before all the fireworks of chapter 7 start, you know, before the plagues and, you know, the water and the blood and the frogs and the lice and all of the things that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, God sets it up with this. It's not an amazing, like, uh, uh, you know, pep talk. He doesn't come win one for the Gipper type thing. A genealogy, you're like, what? I always skip those when I come to them in the Bible. Why? I can't even pronounce half the names. What is going on? But this is God's way of saying, look, you're in a bigger story. You know, you you are, are part of a grand plan that you can't fully see or appreciate or even understand. You're just right here. But I want you to see far. I want you to recognize. That what you do here now matters, but not simply for the here and now. It matters in the grand context of the story. It reminds us, I had somebody say to me in the foyer, that our ancestors are not Washington, Jefferson, and uh, Lincoln, but our ancestors are Abraham, Isaac. It places us in the right story and helps us see it from afar. I I love that. Please be encouraged by that. You know, as you live your lives today and tomorrow, think, you know, don't be a a slave to the immediate. You know, see it in terms of the bigger story that is taking place. Because it's a great story, and this is the second thing, it's a story of redemption. Uh, You see that in in 6, 5 and, and following. I've heard the groanings of my people of Israel, who the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel... the burdens of the Egyptians. This is a story of rescue, redemption. You know, all of those things that have us down, our burden to parenting, our burden to politics, our burden to wealth, our burden to enoughness of whatever sort. God says, I want to set you free. I want to lead you out. It is a story of rescue and redemption and deliverance. It's a story that helps us get above the fray and to see the world not... As our media wants us to see it, the movies that we watch, all of these different things, gratification, instantaneous, now, here. But He wants us to see it as a grand story of redemption and rescue through a Redeemer. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Abraham, or your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What's going on here? Well, here, Moses and Aaron stands as t- stand as types of Christ. You know, as they go into Pharaoh, you know, God says, I'm, I'm going to make you like a God to them, not a capital G God, because Pharaoh's never going to give his heart to Yahweh, right? But I am going to make you like deity to them. They are going to see in you what it is that I represent now. That's going to be the occasion of Pharaoh hardening his heart, right? Uh, but nonetheless, they're going to see it. They're going to, res- they're, going to, they're going to recognize it. And you are going to function as a type of Christ, a Redeemer, a Rescuer, who will lead the people out of slavery. And this is the story that we are in because one greater than Moses, one greater than Aaron has come into our life. The Lord Jesus Christ who came from heaven to earth, God with us, He was the Emmanuel. He was the fulfillment of what Yahweh was promising His people. He came to earth. He went to the cross. He conquered death. He conquered all of the enemies that would put themselves up against the true king, and he is now ascended into heaven. We celebrate Pentecost today Pentecost is the sign that His reign is going forward. The Holy Spirit has fallen on His church, has liberated them, has sent them out into every corner of the earth, into Brazil, into Japan, into China, to all of these places. Iran, we see such a revival of Christianity in Iran because that's the story that we're in. It's a story of rescue, redemption, It's a story of deliverance through a Redeemer. And so, the invitation for all of us is to once again examine our stories. You know, where where are we living? What are we believing? To whom do we belong? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, discouraged, broken in spirit, weighed down, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and this story that we are in. We certainly see the heaviness of the burden, but Lord, we are seeing here and we we hear the whispers of, we hear the shouting, the promise of deliverance the rescue. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to see it right. May we not experience the Egypt effect and long for the one-way ticket out of the story that we're in, but rather may we realize that you are Yahweh and that you walk with us every step of the way. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.